This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following podcast is part four of four of Professor Hanko's series, Our Creedal Heritage. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, it is our purpose to consider together the Westminster Confessions or the Westminster Standards. The Westminster Standards are, of course, the confessional basis for Presbyterianism, just as the three forms of unity are the confessional basis for Reformed churches throughout the world. Westminster Confessions are the confessional basis for Presbyterian churches throughout the world. It's interesting, though, that the Westminster Confessions are of concern and interest to our Protestant Reformed churches. In talking about them, we are talking about confessions that are of some significance for our own denomination. That has come about in relatively recent years, especially since the time of our contact with Presbyterian churches abroad, both in Northern Ireland and England and in Australia. The Westminster Standards, for example, are the confessional basis for the Evangelical Presbyterian Churches of Australia. But we have a reference to the Westminster Confessions in our uh, church order book, although not in the church order itself. This is, of course, the green book to which I am referring. In the Constitution of the Committee for Contact with Other Churches, there is this statement in... Article 5, which deals with the general mandate that a full sister church relationship with foreign churches implies, among other things, taking heed to one another's life as churches, constantly acquainting one another with decisions of their broadest assemblies, mutual decisions as to the revisions of and additions to the creeds, the church order, and liturgical forms. Such a full sister church relation shall be established only with those foreign churches of whom we are assured not only that they accept the Reformed standards as their basis, but that they indeed maintain them in their ecclesiastical life. Behind the words Reformed standards is an asterisk, And that asterisk has this notation. Reformed standards has been interpreted by Synod, Acts 1985, Article 23, to include the Westminster Confession and Catechisms. That is the Westminster Confession itself and the larger and shorter catechisms. That decision was taken by our churches in 1985 at the time of our contact with the Bible Presbyterian Church 
of Northern Ireland, of which Reverend George Hutton, whom some of you may recall, was pastor. And that congregation at that time asked our synod to establish sister church relations with them, which our synod subsequently did, and which was the beginning of our work in Northern Ireland. The problem was that the uh, Free Presbyterian, not the Free Presbyterian Church, the Bible Presbyterian Church of Larne had the Westminster Confessions at its basis. And the question came up on the Synod whether our Constitution for uh, Committee of Contact allowed that, permitted sister church relations with the church which stood on the basis of the Westminster Confessions. That, dis that uh, matter was discussed at length and as a matter of fact was preceded that synod was preceded by an office bearers conference that was held in South Holland Protestant Reformed Church at which papers were delivered on the Westminster Confessions and on their relationship to the Reformed churches and on the possibility of using those confessions also as a credible and acceptable confessional basis for churches with whom we had sister church relations. So this decision of the Synod follows upon that. This decision referred to here is not quoted. If you would consult Article 23 of the Acts of the Synod of 1985, you would discover that the Synod at that time, while recognizing the Westminster Confessions and Catechisms as a legitimate confessional basis, made two exceptions to that statement. That is, two exceptions to teachings in the Westminster Confessions, one of which was the covenant of works, as is taught in the Westminster Confessions, and the other was the Westminster Statement on Divorce and Remarriage. Westminster permits the remarriage of the innocent party when the grounds for divorce are either adultery or desertion. Our churches took exception to that and, as you know, have officially approved the position that remarriage is never permissible while the uh, two parties in the original marriage are living. So that makes the Westminster Confession of some importance to our churches. I have uh, no time tonight to give you a detailed description of the Westminster Confessions. That's a job that requires a number of individual classes. I urge you, however, to take the opportunity to read and acquaint yourself with those confessions. I myself have a very handy little book here that has the Westminster Confession of Faith in it, as well as the larger and shorter catechisms. And it has all the scriptural proofs not only referred to as in our Heidelberg Catechism, but 
quoted as well, quoted in full. Uh, the three documents are worthwhile making, uh, becoming familiar with. I want to talk more about the Westminster Confessions in general tonight, and I must confess at the very outset that while from a certain viewpoint I have a great deal of respect for the Westminster Confessions, there are reasons which I consider serious, which make it impossible for me to feel at home in the Westminster Confessions. If there are any good Presbyterians in our midst tonight, they will shudder at a statement such as that. But I have tried, I have tried in all sincerity and with the best possible efforts I could muster to make myself at home in the Westminster Confessions. And while I appreciate some of their statements, nevertheless, I cannot find myself comfortable in their teachings. I hope to address myself to some of those things tonight. In order to understand what I consider to be the basic problem with the Westminster Confessions, we have to know a little bit, first of all, about the history of the Reformation in the British Isles and about the circumstances out of which the Westminster Confessions arose. I have to be very skimpy in my description of this tonight. Time forbids us to go into detail. The Reformation in England is most fascinating. I had an elder in the congregation that I served in Doon, Iowa. He was a rather remarkable man. I don't think he had finished sixth or seventh grade of school. He came from very poor parents and was forced to quit school at an early age. He brought up 11 children and did so on 80 acres of ground in Lyon County in northwest Iowa, which required of him that he worked day and night. He was frequently an elder in the congregation and served with distinction. He made himself, over the years, an expert on the English Reformation. He acquired a library of books that I envied. When I saw that library, I had to fight the devil of covetousness. He read them all. When we would talk about the English Reformation, and he on occasion delivered papers on some aspect of it in men's society, I was ashamed that he knew far more about the English Reformation than I did. And maybe that was a spur to me later on when I got to the seminary to make the English Reformation particularly an object of my study. The English Reformation was different from the Reformation on the continent. I speak of the Reformation in Germany, the Lutheran Reformation in Switzerland, in France, and in the Netherlands. In all of these countries, the Reformation consisted in 
a separation of the faithful church from the Romish institution. On occasion, the leaders, such as Martin Luther, for example, were excommunicated and forced to organize churches separate from the Roman Catholic Church. In England, that did not happen. There was no separation in England, or for that matter, in Scotland, or for that matter, in Ireland. The peculiar circumstances which brought that about are almost a divine irony. One marvels at the strange ways of the providence of God. The entire Reformation, in England especially, depended upon the fact that Henry VIII, the second of the House of Tudor on the English throne, was an extraordinarily immoral man. As a matter of fact, those of you who know anything about Henry VIII know that he had five wives in the course of his life, two of which he beheaded, two of which he divorced, and one of which was able somehow to outlive him. That's a strange circumstance that brought about the Reformation. He didn't like his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and he didn't like her partly because he had fallen in love with some palace slut by the name of Anne Boulain, but also because Catherine of Aragon was unable to produce for him a male heir. And so he set about, with the connivance and help of the men in the church, the leaders in the church, some of whom were Protestants by this time, though not vocal and open, to divorce Catherine of Aragon so that the way was open for him to marry Anne Boulain. The interesting part of it was that in order to divorce Catherine of Aragon, he had to secure papal permission, and the Pope steadfastly refused to grant him that permission. Not because the Pope was so pious, but because of politics. Catherine of Aragon happened to be a sister of the King of Spain. And the King of Spain was a powerful monarch in Europe whose support the Pope needed to engage in his own extra-ecclesiastical activities. But by permitting Henry VIII to divorce Catherine of Aragon, he would have incurred the fury of the King of Spain, and so the Pope would not approve. It was, of all things, a genuinely Calvinistic Protestant of considerable uh, ability, a biography of whom I happen to be reading at the present time, by the name of Thomas Cranmer, who found the solution to Henry VIII's problem, and the solution was simply this. Declare by act of parliament and royal fiat that the Pope was no longer the head of the Church of England, but that the King of England was the head. That was an idea that appealed to the people because for almost 500 years, the Pope had bled England white by claiming to its, uh, himself and filling the 
papal coffers with England's revenues, as much as 50% at times of money collected went into the papal coffers. So it was popular, and Henry got away with it. He got away with making himself the head of the church. In gratitude for the help of Thomas Cranmer in particular, Henry VIII gave Thomas Cranmer more or less a free hand in instituting reform in the church in England. What happened was, however, that because now the king of England was the head of the church rather than the pope, and by the way, the queen of England is still officially the head of the church of England after all these years, Thomas Cranmer carried on this kind of reformation in the church. He changed the entire Roman Catholic Church, or attempted to, into a Protestant church, rather than separate from the Institute of the Roman Catholic Church. He engaged in efforts to make that which was formerly Roman Catholic through the whole land, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, England, into a Protestant Calvinistic church. That's what he did with the help of other reformers. It wasn't always easy going because Henry VIII himself remained a Roman Catholic to his dying day. And it only received a lot of impetus when Henry VIII's son, Edward II, came to the throne Edward II, the son of Anne Boleyn, and a very strong Protestant Calvinistic king. But in the wisdom and providence of God, he came to the throne when he was 12 years old, I think, and died after ruling only four or five years. Nevertheless, the stage was set to make the Church of England Protestant. Now, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to realize that this is almost an impossible task to take a Roman Catholic church of which the Pope had been the head for a thousand years in a land filled with monasteries and monks and make it not only Protestant but Calvinistic. One would think that the very magnitude of the task would have scared the reformers, but they set to it. I don't have to tell you about all the struggles. What I want to point out to you at this point is the fact that the church which was established by the reformers was a national church with the king as its head. The king was the final court of appeal, if you will, in all matters ecclesiastical, in all matters of doctrine, and all matters of polity, and all matters of liturgy, had to be approved by the king. The result of that all was that the Church of England became the official church in the British Isles, or at least in that part of it which is called England, although efforts were made to impose the whole system on the other parts of the British Isles as well. 
Out of that situation emerged the church, which was, I guess you would say, mildly Calvinistic, founded on the basis of the 39 Articles of the Church of England, articles which are Calvinistic, but mildly so. Over the years, efforts were made to make them more profoundly Calvinistic. The so-called Lambeth Articles, which were especially articles dealing with the doctrine of sovereign double predestination, were formulated and efforts were made to add them to the 39 Articles of the Church of England. In its liturgy and in its church government, it was almost exclusively Roman Catholic. To this day, if you would attend, for example, Evensong in Westminster Abbey in London, as my wife and I did on at least two occasions, you would be appalled at how closely the worship in Westminster Abbey in London is patterned after Roman Catholic liturgy. In fact, you would be hard-pressed to find any difference between Church of England liturgy and Roman Catholic liturgy as it is practiced worldwide. Same thing is true of church government. The only difference between the church government of the Church of England today and the church government of the Roman Catholic Church is this. The Pope is the head of the Roman Catholic Church. The King is the head of the Church of England. That's the only difference with perhaps the minor difference too that uh, the Church of England does not have a college of cardinals. There were many within England who protested this, what they considered to be partial reformation. They protested that because they knew the form that the reformation was taking, for example, in Geneva under the leadership of John Calvin. During the reign of Bloody Mary, who succeeded Edward, the Protestants were persecuted and many fled to the mainland, fled to Geneva. There was an English refugee church, not only in Geneva, but also in Emden, for example, and in other places on the continent. And they were instructed in these refugee churches on the continent in a purer form of Calvinism, a doctrinally purer form, a church politically purer form, and a liturgically purer form. And so after Bloody Mary had passed away and Elizabeth came to the throne, known throughout history as Good Queen Bess, they pressed for a much more widespread, much more profound reformation of the Church of England than had so far taken place. And they pressed for that in the area of liturgy and church polity particularly. Not so much at that point at any rate in the area of doctrine. They became known as the Puritans, a name that comes from the fact that they, they sought a purer reformation than had so far taken place in England. They finally got their chance to bring about a more thorough reformation. It came about because with Elizabeth, with Elizabeth's death, the house of Tudor died away, and the house of Stuart came to the English throne in the person of James I of England, James VI of Scotland. He had been king in Scotland prior to this. 
James I, by the way, is the king who authorized the King James Version of the Bible. But because he author, authorized this magnificent translation, which we use today, you must not think of James I as a godly man who was interested in the truth. He was not. He preferred watching rooster fights to going to church on the Lord's Day. And he lived a life of gluttony and debauchery. There are two interesting stories about James I, however, that while not directly related to our subject are worth telling. He was king of England at the time when the Arminian controversy was going on in the Netherlands. And you must understand that during the time of the Arminian controversy in the Netherlands, the Netherlands was still technically at war with Spain, although there were no hostilities. At about the time that Arminius died, 1609, the board of curators of the University of Leiden, where Arminius taught, along with the representatives of the government in the Netherlands, were looking for a successor. And because they were themselves not very strong with regard to Calvinism, they decided upon a man by the name of Forstius from Germany, an outstanding theologian, but a committed Arminian not only, but also a Socinian who denied, or at least was suspected of denying, the doctrine of the Trinity. Those in the Netherlands who heard of this were furious and so tried to oppose it. But the government and the board of curators of the University of Leiden were determined to go ahead until James I from England interfered. And James I wrote a letter to the government of the Netherlands which in effect said this, you appoint this man from Germany as the successor of Arminius and England will no longer support you in your war with Spain. And it was that interference of James I which prevented the board of curators uh, from hiring this Socinian out of Germany. I think I said that was at the death of Arminius. I, that's not correct. It was at the time when Arminius was hired. And Arminius, as a matter of fact, was the one who gained that appointment. Second time James I interfered was when the efforts were being made to summon the Synod of Dort. There was a lot of opposition at the time when Prince William called the, uh, for the Synod to meet to deal with the Arminian problem. And there was a lot of hesitation on the part of the government because the government was sympathetic towards the Arminians. And it was James I who once again sent a letter to the government of Netherlands and said, in effect, you call a synod to settle the Arminian problem or England will withdraw its support in the war with Spain. And so that scared the government sufficiently to make efforts to bring about the Synod of Dort. How these things came about, I have no idea. He must have had some very good counselors and he, they must have persuaded James I to interfere in matters concerning which he really had 
very, very little interest. But he was a steward, and he was followed by other stewards who came to the throne. And these steward kings, both in England and Scotland, pressed for a return to more Roman Catholic doctrine and more liturgy and stronger church government, once again making the Pope the head of the Church of England. The Stuarts were basically committed to Roman Catholicism. The Puritans were alarmed, and only God in his providence intervened to prevent the Stuarts from being successful in their efforts. Charles I came to the throne, and Charles I drove the Puritans into exile when he could in Scotland. These times became known as the killing times, when strong Presbyterians were hanged in the grass market in Edinburgh and drowned in the lochs that fill Scotland and persecuted terribly. The result of it was that there was a kind of an upsurge of sympathy for Puritanism, especially in England, and the result was that a majority of Puritans was voted into Parliament, into the English Parliament. Then the Puritans had their opportunity, and so the Puritans pressed through the Acts of Parliament Charles I, to withdraw his efforts to make England a Roman Catholic country and to cooperate with them in making England and Scotland and Wales and Ireland Presbyterian. Charles I would have none of it. The result was civil war, terrible civil war between the royalist forces of Charles I and the parliamentarian forces under the leadership of Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell being a very skilled general and being one who made the first successful use of cavalry, was able to defeat the armies of the king at every turn. My wife and I stood on the walls of the city of Chester in northwest Wales where Charles I stood at one time to watch in the field below him, as it stretched away from the walls, his royal forces roundly defeated by the forces of Oliver Cromwell, at which time he also fled to Scotland, where he was captured, handed back to the British, and later beheaded. So the way was open for Parliament, under the control of Puritans, to complete the Reformation that had never been completed in the British Isles, and they proceeded to do that. They proceeded to do that by calling together the Westminster Assembly, which met in London by Act of Parliament, beginning its sessions on July 1, 1643. They met, first of all, in another part of London, but after a short time, moved to the Jerusalem Room in Westminster Abbey. It was rather interesting. We were in the Jerusalem Room, 
and we were being guided through various parts of Westminster Abbey by a Church of England cleric who hated Cromwell with a passion and took every opportunity that he could to lambast Oliver Cromwell. Well, I don't know if it was out of the naughtiness of my heart or what, but he was telling some of the events that took place in the Jerusalem room, and he never mentioned the Westminster Assembly. So I said to him when he opened the floor for questions from the members of the tour, isn't this the room in which the Westminster Assembly met and in which it drew up the Westminster Confession and the catechisms? Yes, it was, he said, and off he marched. No more questions. He didn't even want to talk about it. And he was a Protestant, of course, a Church of England cleric. But those are the memories of Westminster Abbey of which he wanted no part. At any rate, that's where the Westminster Assembly met. It's a rather crowded room, I would think. The room wasn't that large. I would guess it couldn't have been much larger than the room where we hold our Monday night Bible class, the, the back room, the catechism room downstairs, maybe a little bigger than that. But 151 delegates were present. And what they did in July in a crowded room of that sort in the heat of London is another question. But that's where they met. Now, there are some interesting things about the Westminster Confession that I want briefly to mention. In the first place, the uh, Parliament invited to attend the Westminster Assembly delegates from foreign lands. In fact, they even invited delegates to come from America. And particularly, they asked from the churches in America to send two delegates, one of whom was the well-known Cotton Mather. The men couldn't come, or I think probably more accurately did not want to come because the churches in America were somewhat different in church government, something we'll come to presently. But that was only 23 years after the colony in Plymouth, Massachusetts had been established. The pilgrims had landed in, in Plymouth Rock in 1620. Westminster Assembly began its meetings in 1643. Already the churches in America were recognized as Presbyterian. None of the delegates from America came that were invited, but none of the delegates from any foreign country came. Not sure why the sources that describe the assembly never get around quite to explaining that. Many of the churches in other parts of Europe sent their greetings. Many of them sent their best wishes. Many of them sent their prayers for the success of the assembly, assured the delegates of the fact that they supported the efforts of the assembly, but none of them came. Even Bishop Usher, the Bishop Usher who is the famous author of the chronology which almost all conservative churches follow of Old Testament history in which, which dates creation at 4004 
B.C. Even he did not come. He was Bishop of Armagh in Ireland, a very notable man, a very scholarly man, but even he refused to come. The delegates from Scotland did come, some outstanding theologians from Scotland, as Gillespie, Henderson, Rutherford, and others. They didn't come right away, however. They came after a period of about a month. And when they came, they sort of set the Westminster Assembly on their ear. Presbyterianism had been established in Scotland and was much stronger in Scotland in spite of the Stuart kings than in England. When they came to the Westminster Assembly, they had an agenda of their own. In the first place, they told the assembly they would not participate in the activities of the assembly unless every delegate who was present at the assembly signed the national uh, covenant, which was, of course, a document for which Scottish Presbyterianism is famous. And they finally persuaded all the delegates at the Westminster Assembly to sign this National League and Covenant. In the second place, they wanted an entirely new confession written. The delegates from England had busied themselves in the whole period in which the Scottish delegates were absent with a kind of a revision of the 39 Articles of the Church of England, and they had made great progress to make that confession much more reformed. But when the Scottish delegates came, they wanted no part of it. They wanted a confession that was altogether new, and that was to be the confessional basis for Presbyterianism in the whole of the British Isles, and they would not participate until all the delegates agreed to do that, which was finally done, and to which also Parliament, which kept a close eye on events, agreed. Now at this point I have to tell you a little bit about what is meant by a national church. This is, in my opinion, what's wrong with the Westminster Confession. And this idea of a national church is so woven into the warp and woof of the Westminster Confession that you can't, by simply taking exception to a few articles, get it out. What is a national church? Well, a national church in the first place is a church in which every single citizen of the country is a member. That was the way it was with the Roman Catholic Church. And when efforts were made in the British Isles to make this Roman Catholic Church a Protestant church, that whole concept of a national church was retained. So everybody in the whole of England, and in the whole of Scotland, and in the whole of Wales, and in the whole of Ireland, were members of the church. That meant that you had to be baptized in the church. Everybody did. Every single child born in the realm had to be baptized in the church, and was. That meant when you got married, you had to get married in the church. And if you did not get married in the church, you weren't married, and you could be punished for living together without getting married. 
When you died, you had to be buried out of the church, else your body was not even given decent burial. And that's why in England you will find all of these churches, old churches, with cemeteries right by the church as a part of the church property. Now there were many, many people in the British Isles who were only in church those three times, the last time of which they were dead, when they were baptized and when they were married and when they died. Otherwise you never saw them in church. Nevertheless, they were members. They were members of the church. And because they were members of the church, the, the church itself was responsible for their spiritual well-being. Now, the same thing happened to be true of the Netherlands. The Netherlands operated on, almost identical, uh, on an almost identical principle. In fact, it's very interesting if you read the, the book that has just come out from the RFPA that Reverends Henry Danoff and Herman Hoeksema make a point of this in the book, that this was partly the reason why out of the Netherlands, you could never get a clear, sharply defined biblical doctrine of the antithesis. Because as Huxma points out in, 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 in one of the chapters, the antithesis in a state church is not between believer and unbeliever, regenerate and unregenerate, elect and reprobate ultimately, but it's between the Netherlands and the rest of the world, because everybody in the Netherlands is a member of the church. Or the British Isles and the rest of the world, because everybody in the British Isles is a member of the church. And that way you don't get any antithesis at all, of course, because you have to find a common basis, which everybody in the nation can use, as a basis to cooperate together in the work of the church and in the work of the gospel. And that's exactly the idea which prompted Kuiper's common grace. How can we make the Netherlands as a nation, composed of the people of God, an effective force in the world to spread Calvinism to the far ends of the earth and to bring all under the rule of Christ? In order to do that, we have to have the nation united in a common purpose. What can serve as the basis for that kind of goal? Kuiper said, common grace. Huxman Danhoff say in their book, Sin and Grace, that's why the Netherlands could never produce a doctrine of the antithesis. And in fact, when the secession churches under Henry de Kock and Van Ralty and so on and so forth broke with a state church and established a free church that was no longer under government control, Huxima makes the observation, the way was paved by the Ufskating and the churches of the Ufskating to develop a correct doctrine of the antithesis. But Kuiper, when he came along with the Dolianzi, was furious with the Ufskating for doing exactly that. And he refused even in, in, first of all, to go along with the merger of 1892, which brought the upskating and the Dolianzi together. You had the same thing in, the, in England. Only in England you had it stronger because the king was the head of the church. That didn't happen in the Netherlands.
literally the head of the church. It doesn't take much imagination to understand that that makes discipline absolutely impossible. Of course, if a man was such a gross sinner that he committed a crime worthy of the severest punishments, he was put to death. That's all you could do. Heretics were put to death. Murderers were put to death. Thieves were frequently put to death, although some of them were shipped to Australia and penal colonies in Australia and Tasmania and America. But you couldn't have him in the nation if he was such a gross sinner that he threatened the well-being of society, and you couldn't excommunicate him, so get rid of him, get him out of the country. That's all the church could do. Well now, without going into all the details of the weakness of a national church, the Westminster Assembly had to draw up creeds which could serve as a confessional basis for a national church. That was the problem. The Reformed creeds didn't do that. In a certain sense of the word, they were in the same situation in the Netherlands. But you recall how last time we talked about the fact that the Belgic Confession arose out of persecution. Government had nothing to do with the Belgic Confession. Heidelberg Catechism arose in Germany as a foreign document that was prepared for the instruction of covenant children. Canons of Dort arose out of controversy. Not so in England. The reason for the Westminster Assembly meeting was to draw up a confessional basis for a national church composed of every single citizen of the realm and that could serve as a confessional basis for a church that included every citizen of the realm in it. That's exactly what gives the Westminster Confession its unique character, but a character which, at least as far as I am concerned, leaves me with a strangely uncomfortable feeling. I want to make a very strong statement about the fact that the Westminster Confessions have many, many good points about them. Westminster Confessions, the Westminster Confession itself deals with the whole of theology, such as the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism. The Westminster Confession has probably one of the best confessional statements concerning the doctrine of Scripture that can be found in any Reformation creed. And in fact, in those articles on Scripture, which are chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession, the striking statement is made that the Hebrew and Greek text in which the Scriptures were originally written have been preserved pure by the singular goodness and providence of God. I think that's a powerful statement and a statement worth remembering. That text, by the way, to which the Westminster Confession refers as being preserved, pure by the singular goodness and providence of God, is the text that underlies the King James translation of the Bible. The text that underlies the NIV, for example, and other translations. 
is not that text. It's a different text. And if you have any acquaintance with the NIV at all, you know that the text of the NIV leaves out of it many, many passages which are found in the text of which the Westminster Confession uh, speaks. Its doctrine of scripture is superb. In the second place, it has an entire chapter devoted to the decrees of God. And its statement concerning the decrees of God, especially election and reprobation, are just as strong as anything you will find in the canons, although not as complete. And not as complete because the canons were dealing with the denial of the doctrine on the part of the Arminians. Nevertheless, the statements are strong, the statements are unambiguous, and the Westminster Doctrine of Reprobation teaches that reprobation, too, is a sovereign decree of God. There is, I think, a certain ambiguity in the Westminster Confession, which I could mention now, that troubles me just a bit. It's not in the confession itself, but it's in the confession with a comparison of the shorter catechism. And by the way, the shorter catechism is a gem. It's ideal for memorization, and it contains the whole summary of the Christian doctrine, and in many conservative Presbyterian churches, it is still memorized by children and young people. It, it starts out with those well-known words, what is the uh, chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the very first question and answer and very, very beautiful. In fact, some of my own grandchildren who were in Ireland have memorized the shorter catechism. We don't have a confession like that. The Heidelberg Catechism, of course, can be memorized, but that's quite a feat. Anyone who can memorize the whole Heidelberg Catechism has really done something worth accomplishing. But the Shorter Catechism is ideal for that and was drawn up as an instrument for instruction. It is a jewel, no question about that at all. But What's interesting is that when you have the doctrine of election and reprobation discussed in the Westminster Confession, the singular is used. The decree of God consisting of election and reprobation, which is biblical. They are one decree. They are related to each other. Reprobation is part of the decree of election. And it's well to remember that because there are many people around in Reformed churches who claim that they can deny reprobation and maintain election. That's absolute nonsense. The Westminster uses the same language, one decree, but when you have that same doctrine discussed in the Shorter Catechism, for some strange reason, the plural is used. Decrees, the decrees of election and reprobation. And that's, in my opinion, a, a sad ambiguity in the Westminster Confessions. 
The doctrine of providence is outlined in the Westminster Confession is very, very powerfully biblical and affirms God's providential control of sin. Nevertheless, in its approach to predestination and providence, the Westminster Confession is infra, like the canons are. It speaks of God choosing from a fallen human race. It speaks of God's relationship to sin as that of permission and defines sovereignty in that respect in terms of permission. But our canons do the same thing. It has a very strong section, the Westminster Confession, on soteriology, on the effectual call. In fact, I think that's a very, very interesting part of the Westminster Confession. It's material on the, Westminster, on the effectual call. It talks about an eternal decree of justification, which while not establishing the doctrine of eternal justification itself, which is dear to the hearts of Protestant Reformed people, it nevertheless speaks of an eternal decree of God to justify his people in Christ. It speaks of creation as taking place in six days. I cannot understand, for example, how the Orthodox Presbyterian Church can open itself to the framework hypothesis of Lee Irons and uh, Meredith Klein, which is simply a, another form of theistic evolutionism while they maintain loyalty to the creeds, when the creeds insist on creation in six days. Same thing is true, more or less, of the United Reformed Church, which has refused to condemn out of hand the framework hypothesis, although it does not have the, the uh, Westminster Confessions as its creedal basis. And so I could go on. There are many, many good features about it. The Shorter Catechism, as I say, is, is a jewel and worth reading and worth committing to memory. Nevertheless, there are some things about the Westminster Confession that trouble me. The first of them is, and this is evidence of the fact that it was composed under the circumstances under which it, it, it came into existence, a creed for a national church. It's cold. It's a cold, objective statement of doctrine. It lacks that personal, subjective, gloriously beautiful touch of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is thine only comfort in life and in death? It doesn't have that. It doesn't even have the Belgic Confessions, repeated statements, we believe, we believe and confess, we believe with all our hearts, nothing of that. It's cold, it's objective, there's not anything warm about it. It doesn't even have that powerful pastoral 
emphasis of the canons. You would think if there is one reform creed that would be coldly objective, it would be the canons, but they're not. They're warm. They're always speaking to the heart of the child of God. They're intent on bringing him the truth that there is comfort in the doctrine of election. That there is comfort in the preservation of the saints, even when, according to the canons, people of God have melancholy falls into sin. It's always pastoral. It's always aimed to bring the joy of the gospel to the hearts of God's people. You don't find that in the Westminster. Not a hint of it. It's a cold, dispassionate statement of the truth that's as dispassionate and objective as any reformed dogmatics. To make the confessions of Westminster, my own confession, my own personal confession, I find almost impossible. While in the Heidelberg Catechism and in the Canons of Dort, I feel right at home. I can do that. This is what I believe. This is what my soul says I have to believe for my own salvation. But Westminster is always objective. In the second place, you'll find that emphasis on framing a confession which can serve as a basis for a national church in, say, for example, a lengthy chapter on the law. Not the law as it is discussed in the Heidelberg Catechism as a rule of gratitude, but just bare law. And in connection with that, the Westminster says, it is true, as our Heidelberg Catechism says, that out of the law comes the knowledge of misery, but very, very little about that. It is true, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, that the law is the rule of gratitude, but then very strangely, and yet very Presbyterian, the Westminster Confession says there is a third use of the law, and that is its civil use. Its civil use. By which they mean that the state and the church must combine forces to enforce the law of God in the civil realm, that is, in the sphere of society at large, and that that is a purpose of the law because it is in a society at large which is governed by the law of God in which the church can flourish. Losing sight of the fact, of course, that the Bible makes quite a point of it. It doesn't make any difference as far as the church is concerned what kind of a government is in power. The church survives not Because of the good graces of the government, the church survives by the power of its head, Jesus Christ. And the church can just as well survive under Nero and Diocletian and the worst persecutors of the church as in America, where there is freedom of religion. The government, the kind of government, doesn't make a particle of difference 
as far as the existence and well-being of the church is concerned. It is because of this need to make a confession which can serve as a confession of a national church that you will find in the Westminster Confession an elaborate discussion of Sabbath keeping, Sabbath observance. Of course, you know, you've got a country of maybe 33 million people. They're all members of the church. Of the 33 million, probably 31 and a half million are not going to go to church on Sunday. But you've got to have some kind of a Sunday, a Sabbath observance. And so the Westminster Confession is rather elaborate on what constitutes Sabbath observance. Not, as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it succinctly, Sabbath observance consists in faithfully attending divine worship services, supporting the seminaries where young men are trained in the ministry, and giving to the poor, period. Westminster has to define, rather legalistically in fact, what constitutes Sabbath observance in a country where everybody's a member of the church, something that can be enforced. I don't want to say that that's the case with the Westminster Statement on Divorce and Remarriage because that's a tradition. The position of Westminster is a, a rather widely accepted tradition both in Presbyterian and Reformed churches. But I don't believe that a matter such as marriage as far as how it is to be preserved and what constitutes grounds for divorce belong in a confession. Confession has to do with doctrine, not with the individual instances of how a Christian lives out of the truths of doctrine. And although I don't, and you don't agree with the Westminster Statement on divorce and remarriage, my point is now, and it doesn't have any business being in a confession to begin with. And I thank God that our Reformed confessions have nothing to say about marriage and divorce and possible grounds for remarriage. It doesn't belong in a confession. But in the Westminster Confession, it happens to fit. What is of more concern to me than even any of these things is a serious doctrinal weakness. In the first place, I take exception to the Westminster Confession doctrine of the covenant of works. Now I have argued in another place, and maybe some of you are acquainted with the article that has, by the way, been published on many Presbyterian and Reformed websites throughout the world, I argue in that article that the Westminster Assembly never made a statement concerning the covenant of works which commits it to the uh, doctrine that if Adam had remained faithful in paradise, he would have merited eternal life. There's not any mention of that in Westminster. And I argue in that article that it's questionable whether the Westminster divines held to that doctrine that Adam could have merited heaven. I think I was wrong. Not wrong with regard to the 
bare interpretation of Westminster. I think you can make Westminster teach a rather innocuous doctrine of the covenant of works without the whole idea of merit. But since I wrote that article, and this is about 20 years ago, I have done some reading in the theologians that were contemporaries of Westminster. And without exception, the theologians that were contemporaries of Westminster believe in a covenant of works at its worst. That Adam, after a period of probation in which he would have been faithful, would have earned eternal life. And if that was the consensus of opinion among theologians who were contemporaries of Westminster, it had to be in the minds of the Westminster delegates as well. I'm thankful it wasn't incorporated into the Westminster Confession in so many words. But it's interesting, and I may have said that before in one of these classes, that that idea of merit is not at all an idea that is anathema to Presbyterians. To the Reformed, it always has been. Presbyterians are quite willing to speak of merit. But what is of more important to me, uh, importance to me is this, that already in the Westminster Confession is embedded the idea that granted the covenant of works is a reality, the door is open to a conditional covenant. And in fact, a conditional covenant is mentioned in so many words in the Westminster Confession. And that has borne a bitter harvest in Presbyterian circles. And that makes it markedly different than our Reformed confessions because although our Reformed confessions do not have a thorough, well-worked-out doctrine of the covenant, the fundamental elements of any doctrine of the covenant are all there. And any idea of conditionality in the covenant or in the work of salvation is anathematized because in the Reformed confessions, the fathers are very clear on putting conditions in the mouth of the Arminians. You won't find it anywhere in the Reformed confessions. You do find it in Westminster. And now one other point. I mentioned to you a little while ago that Amaraldians were present on the floor of the Synod. Semen and vines and so on and so forth. They were Amaraldian. Amaraldianism was strong in England. It came from France, from the school of Sommer. And it was developed by a, na by a man by the name of Amaraut, who developed a conditional hypothetical universalism, which is only a modified and sophisticated form of Arminianism, but it's shot through with Arminianism. That Emeraldianism was represented on the, on the Westminster Assembly not only, but was powerfully represented. And although the Westminster divines never adopted any form of Amaraldianism and incorporated it in the confessions, nevertheless, the influence weakened the Westminster Confession at a key point. If you will consult our 
Canons of Dort, second head of doctrine, on the extent of the atonement. This is the point at issue, of course. For whom did Christ die? The Reformed said, for the elect. Westminster said, for the elect. The Emeraldians said, for all men. The Arminians said, for all men. That was an issue. When Dort made its expression of the extent of the atonement, it made this statement, and I'm quoting now, Christ died for the elect and for them only. That shut the door completely. Now Westminster knew that. Westminster knew that. Dort had that exclusionary clause in it because the men on Westminster were not unaware of what had happened at Dort. When they came to the question of the extent of the atonement, they did say he died for the elect. They put it this way. He died for all those given him of the Father. But they don't have the exclusionary statement. It was deliberately omitted as a concession to Emeraldianism. Because they had to have a national church that would embrace Emeraldianism in some form or fashion. That what I say is true is evident from the fact that Richard Baxter, a contemporary of the Westminster Assembly and a, a, a noted theologian in his own right, whose book, The Reformed Pastor, is probably found on the, uh, on the shelves of most of our Protestant Reformed ministers, and who was an Emeraldian, refused to sign the Westminster Confession because it refused to say anything about the universality of the death of Christ unless he was permitted within the boundaries of the Westminster Confession to believe in a universal atonement. And sad to say, he was. And he himself signed the Westminster Confession. In other words, the Amaraldians took that statement of the Westminster Confession and said, yes, he died for all those given him of the Father. In a certain sense of the word, in the profoundly redemptive, efficacious sense of the word. But when it came to God's intention, he died for all men. And Richard Baxter said, then I'll sign it. I have a quote here. This is a quote from Robert Shaw, which is an exposition of the Westminster Confession. The celebrated Richard Baxter, who favored general redemption, makes the following remark upon this and another section of our confession. Quote, chapter 3, section 6, and chapter 8, section 8, where these things are discussed which speak against universal redemption, I understand, Mrs. Baxter, I understand not of all redemption, and particularly not of the mere bearing the punishment of man's sin and satisfying God's justice, but of that special redemption proper to the elect, which was accomplished with an intention 
of actual application of the saving benefits in time. In other words, it's talking about a redemption for the elect without necessarily condemning another sense of redemption for all. If I may not be allowed this interpretation, I must herein dissent. End of quote. Shaw goes on to say, Universalists following Baxter have since the time of the writing of this creed insisted that the creed left room for their position. That's correct. If the Westminster divines, who knew what happened at Dort, had only had the courage to say, he died for the elect and for them only, that would have been the end of the matter. And Amaraldianism would have been ruled out. But they didn't. They didn't. In my estimation, that's a fatal flaw. And it opens the door in Presbyterian circles to a well-meant, gracious gospel offer in which God expresses his intent to save all men, an intent already expressed in a universal redemption of Christ on the cross, though not an efficacious accomplishment of salvation. That's playing with words. That's opening the door to blatant Arminianism. That's a weakening of the strong statement of Dort with regard to the atonement of Jesus Christ. It was done, I am personally convinced, because of the fact that the Westminster Confession had to be made suitable for a national church in which not all were agreed in doctrine. Chickens come home to roost. Bechinsel and the Dutch say, Werken door. Principles work their way through. It was about a hundred years, less than a hundred years, after Westminster that the Merrill controversy arose, in which outstanding theologians, James Hogg, Ebenezer Erskine, and so on and so forth, taught that the, that the atonement of Christ was universal, and that that was necessary in order for the gospel to express that God's intention and desire were to save all that heard. And that became characteristic of Puritanism. And as a matter of fact, and that's another story that I can't go into tonight, very fascinating, that influence of the Marrow men was strong in the Netherlands, especially at the time of the Nadere Reformatie, the, the further or second reformation in the latter part of the 17th and the 18th centuries, which opened the door in the Dutch churches to a well-meant gospel offer, which has plagued the Dutch churches until the present, and has, was carried over to this country and became an issue in 1924 
and a factor in the beginning of the Protestant Reformed churches. I'm convinced it goes back to Westminster. There is no room in the Reformed confessions for a well-meant offer. There isn't. It's excluded by all the language of the Reformed confessions. How in the world did it ever get into the thinking of Dutch theologians from the Merrowmen and from ultimately Westminster and its refusal to add that one exclusionary clause that makes the canon so powerful. He died for the elect and for them only. Those are my reasons why I'm thankful to God that we have the three forms of unity. And while I have a deep appreciation for many aspects of the Westminster Confession, and while I'm going to catch fire for what I said tonight when these tapes and CDs are heard by dyed-in-the-wool Presbyterians, I must confess I can't feel at home in those confessions as important and powerful as they are. Okay, then I think our time is up too. Lord our God and Father in heaven, we thank thee for this time we have been able to spend together in our discussions of the great heritage of the truth which has come down to us through our creeds. How rich we are. Truly the lines have fallen to us in pleasant places. A goodly heritage is ours. Thou hast given us these creeds as the fruit of the work of the Spirit in the church. May that Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ work also in our hearts, that we know these creeds and love them and live out of them and teach them to our children. We have sinned against thee, Lord. We have done much that deserves thy judgment. Do not let our weaknesses and sins spoil what we have done. May good come out of these times we have spent together. May each of us return to his and her home with a renewed zeal for the cause of the truth of thy sovereign and particular grace. Bless our churches. Bless them in faithfulness to our creedal heritage. Bless them in the years to come when these truths of our creeds will serve as bulwarks against heresy as they have in the past, as fountains of comfort and encouragement in persecution, and in holding before us the light of another day that shall dawn when we shall know perfectly because we shall see our Christ face to face and live with him in the knowledge of the truth forever and ever, world without end. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations. Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day Sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc 
at gmail.com. Thank you.